Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to Ed Choice's monthly debrief of the states. It's our podcast where we go over everything that's been happening in the states related to school choice. We're excited to see some big movement this week and this month on a number of fronts. And so we'll be talking about that with our director of policy, Jason Bedrick, and our two state directors, Lauren Hodge and Jordan Zachary. So we're excited to talk first about anyone, anyone? Espinoza. Espinoza did what? Anyone? Anyone? It created the most expansive opportunity for school choice in the past decade. By doing what? Anyone? The death of Blaine. Putting down Blaine. That's well done. Now, you're supposed to all be hanging out with drool coming out of your cheeks if you get the reference to the movie we're going to. But let's be more serious. Espinoza versus the Montana Department of Revenue was a huge victory for school choice. Why don't we start with Jason? Jason, what do you think that means? And what is it? Well, as I said, actually, in one of our other podcasts in which I interviewed David Hodges from the Institute for Justice, IJ, as we call them, the group that won the case. They actually brought our good friend Dick Comer out of retirement to argue the case before the U.S. Supreme Court. And I mentioned to David that for a long time, I had a hand-drawn map that sat next to my desk, which showed me which states had school choice challenges, which states school choice was constitutional in, which states state Supreme Courts ruled that it wasn't. That map I was able to tear down because Espinoza has completely redrawn the legal landscape. Essentially, Blaine is no longer an obstacle to school choice in pretty much every single state in the nation. There are now only two states where constitutionally you cannot have a publicly funded a school choice program or even a tax credit funded program. And those two states, unfortunately, are Michigan and Massachusetts. But everywhere else, you can have at least something. There are a few states, four in fact, Hawaii, Alaska, Arizona, and Kentucky, where a traditional voucher program would not be allowed, but either a tax credit scholarship and or an education savings account would be constitutionally permissible. So at least 48 out of 50 states can constitutionally have a publicly funded school choice program, which is a great thing. It's a big deal. So let's make sure we go over the basic facts for everyone, and then we'll get to the other states. So the reason Espinosa is important, it started in 2015 when the Montana legislature passed a program that provided tax breaks to Montanans if they contributed to a charitable organization that provides scholarship for children. Ed Choice was probably one of the only national groups there trying to help them with that and lead the way with them. We've been there for over a decade. It allowed those families to use the scholarships at any private school in Montana, religious or non-religious. But the Department of Revenue, in its incredible wisdom, decided to interpret the state constitution to forbid the participation of religious schools. IJ followed the suit. We did a bunch of amicus brief help and filed our own amicus brief. And wham, bam, thank you. It's all over, thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court. So Basically, Montana's Supreme Court has been overruled. We've seen a lot of movement. Lauren, in your states and Jordan, in your states, what is the feeling going on with your partners that you're hearing? Are they feeling excited? Are they looking forward to it? What's going on? So I do think in the Southeast, as I predominantly work, we have a lot of increased enthusiasm and just really a shot in the arm of positivity for, you know, a very difficult time. States that have been, you know, constantly trying to work towards educational opportunity for all students really are empowered at this point to do so. Now, you know, it wouldn't be me. And if anyone knows me, they know that I will be the first one to say your design must be correct. 
So Espinoza does not just say you can have, you know, any free flowing program. It still needs to be abide by the constitutional realms of the state and the federal constitution. And that's where Ed Choice, that's where Institute for Justice really work closely with our local partners to make sure that our bill design is in fact constitutional. But for those states that perhaps were reticent to pursue something because the threat of litigation was too costly or too big of a burden to bear, we really have an opportunity now to make strides moving forward. And I think there's a lot of enthusiasm and hope on the ground, especially during the COVID pandemic, that we are entitled and enabled to pursue this as an avenue if this is indeed what the people want. Jordan, talk to us about how plates like Missouri have been excited about it and where, where you're working. Yeah, exactly. So Robert, you hit on it right there. Missouri, people are very optimistic in Missouri. Missouri was one of the states with one of the strongest Blaine amendments. And so going forward, this gives an opportunity in Missouri that people haven't seen or truly believed in a long time when it comes to full unencumbered school choice. So there's that optimism, but I think Lauren mentioned perfectly that everyone wants to make sure like that a bill design going forward will meet all the constitutional musters of not just the federal constitution, but also the state constitution. But with that said, people are very excited to start planning towards the next steps. And just like in any state, people also are realizing that, you know, Espinoza is the opening for opportunity, but we still now have to hit harder than ever when it comes to advocacy and when it comes to making sure that politicians know that their constituents want these types of programs. So there's optimism, but a sense of work to do as well. So that's really cool. So it sounds to me like what we're getting from Espinosa is it blows the door off of another argument against school choice, but we still have to deal with the politics of every single state legislature. And, and that always has worked to be good advocates and people who educate and inform the policymakers. You know, I was thinking when Espinosa was handed down, like, you know, that old Queen song, Another One Bites the Dust. It's another argument that has bitten the dust. I mean, just think about all the arguments over the years that we've helped kick down the path, right? So school choice hurts public schools. Well, we know that's not the case. And school choice takes money. Well, that's clearly a myth. These myths persist, but we know that based on facts, they're not true. So super exciting that Espinoza came about. Tell us now, you know, it wasn't just Espinoza. There were state work still going on. And, and the great state of Florida, the Sunshine State, cast some more light on school choice. And so what did they do, Jason? Yeah, so this is the biggest school choice expansion that we've seen not only this year, but really in the history of school choice was in Florida. Earlier this year, the Florida legislature passed a bill, HB 7067, which expanded the Family Empowerment Scholarship Program and also their tax credit scholarship program. It increased the income eligibility cap from 185% of the poverty line to 300%, just allowing more of those middle-income families who are really struggling to have access to educational choice, and it quadrupled the rate at which the scholarship program grows. So it was growing at 7,000 scholarships per year. It now grows at 1% of public school enrollment, which is about 28,000 scholarships per year. So basically it quadrupled the rate of growth for this program. And note that the Family Empowerment Scholarship was actually enacted because they were hitting the cap on the main tax credit scholarship program, which served over 100,000 students. So now between these two programs, I mean, very soon we're gonna be talking about more than 150,000 students and it's just gonna take off from there.
you know, it's coming at a time that's going to be very interesting in Florida, Jason. So private schools around the country are struggling 130 closures of minimum that we know right now, just in the Catholic sector. So, you know, this is going to provide a much needed lifeline to non-public schools who are serving in Florida's case, vastly low income and middle income families to make sure that their kids are getting a quality education. So it's a really good opportunity to make sure the program at least sustains itself and, and has potential to grow down the road. That's exciting. But it wasn't just the only state, right? Mississippi had some action. I'm not saying it's so good, but it had some action. Lauren, what happened in Mississippi? So for those of you who have tuned in before or followed the blog related to this series, you knew that the Mississippi Education Savings Account, which is geared to help those children with special needs in Mississippi, was in trouble. It had an automatic sunset clause, which is standard in Mississippi, meaning every new program that's put into place has a sunset of a certain term of years by which the program is reevaluated and it's determined whether or not it should continue. So the sunset clause was set to run in June of this year. And so the program needed to have an extension of that in order to survive and continue to help children in Mississippi. Unfortunately, in the middle of the session this year, you also had COVID, which temporarily shut down the legislature, which came back into session and ultimately passed the program to remain in effect for three years. However, it did have some very detrimental effects. Most notably, the program can no longer be used for virtual options, which is increasingly maddening during a, a time of a global pandemic. And it cannot be used across state lines, which we knew several students, especially in the northern part of the state, had crossed over into another state to really pursue a better education option there. So the program exists not without some meaningful cuts to it. So unfortunately, in this time that's very difficult and chaotic, some families and some children are facing additional chaos today because they have to change schools because their programs are no longer allowed in that school. So for a lot of Mississippian families, they're working through it. And, you know, we hope to see full unencumbered choice in Mississippi someday soon. You know, this is where the long-term work of EdChoice and frankly, step up for students in Florida and their work to build constituents really matters over time. And, you know, they've been able to do it in Mississippi. It's been much harder, it seems, to build support and build constituents. So I think, you know, hopefully they'll look at this as a time to take a step back and say, what are we doing right? What do we need to fix? And so I think that's interesting that we got an extension, but it's clearly going to hurt some families. So that's the, if Jason's in Florida is the good and Mississippi is the ugly, sort of what's the semi-good, Jordan, in a place like Iowa? Yeah, Robert. So in Iowa, there was a little bit of good news that came out of the recent legislative session. So a little background is Iowa has the school tuition organization tax credit. And a couple of the areas that this program needed to improve on was its cap and some of the donation limitations it has. So after a brief break during session because of COVID, when the General Assembly reconvened, there was an omnibus bill from the Iowa Department of Revenue. And HF 2641 included language to increase the cap of the program from 15 million to 20 million by 10% uh, a year in increments over time. So as long as the cap is being met, it will get to increase. The other benefit that came out of this piece of legislation was that there was previously a 25% cap on the amount of the total STO. So the total donations to this program, only 25% could come from C-Corps. And that 25% requirement has been removed. So 
that's just going to go ahead and be another way that this program can be fully funded and go ahead and continue to increase and grow over time. So it was a good victory in Iowa during this session. So, you know, that's good to hear from Iowa. So let's go this way. So we've had these victories in Florida, victories in Iowa and setback victory, you know, a little bit like the one step forward, two steps back in Mississippi, this huge victory in Espinoza. Let's think out to next legislative session. What do you guys think is going to happen? And how do you think private schooling is going to change? So two large questions. One, what do you think is going to happen with school choice in some of the next sessions? And then two, what do you think the changes are going to look like in private schooling? Look, I'll jump in, even though uh, predictions these days seem to have a very short shelf life. I have no idea what next year holds in store for us. Nobody predicted 2020. What I can say is that education, when school doors open, or at least open virtually coming this fall, is going to look very differently than it did when it opened last fall. And uh, what we're seeing from our polling and other groups that are doing polling on this is that there are more families now exploring education options that they never would have considered exploring before. Families that previously had been very happy with whatever educational option they were using for their children, now they might not be so happy because of the coronavirus, either because they're, on the one hand, concerned that their school is not doing enough to protect their children from coronavirus, or on the other hand, there are some families who think that the schools are going too far. They don't want their kids going to a school where they're basically stuck in one place all day, where there's no cafeteria, where there's no recess, where they have to be six feet away from all of their fellow classmates. So, you know, you've got large groups of families that are going to be unhappy no matter which direction the schools go, which means that you're going to have families that are going to be exploring other options. I think this in particular poses a real opportunity for micro schools. We've already seen the rise of micro schools in recent years, but they're still relatively small numbers, but they've been growing rapidly. But for families who say, you know what, I want my kid in an environment where they're interacting with other children, but also a small number of other children, a micro school might be a great option for them. For example, there's Prenda in Arizona where all of the classrooms have between five and 10 children. The ages can vary. It's a very self-directed program, but they've been growing rapidly. They had only about a handful of students a couple of years ago. Next year, they're on target to have more than 2,000 students. So it's phenomenal growth. And I think that more and more families are going to be availing themselves of these options. That's great. Lauren, what do you think? Well, I agree with Jason. The crystal ball at this point is very hard to read. Not that I've ever been particularly good at it, but I do think one thing that will be true for 2020 is that parents are going to understand and potentially demand options for their kids' education. They're going to want to have that control. In a time when there is exceptional uncertainty, parents are going to want to be able to do what they believe is the best for their child. And I think that that will be true in 2020 and, and hopefully true as we move forward because when parents are empowered, when children are empowered, the child gets to be put back at the center of the education system. And I think that's really what this time is calling us to do is, is do what's in the best interest of our child, our family, our kids, our communities. So I think that you're going to see that demand really be sought, maybe not met, but definitely be sought by families across the country. That's really interesting. And I agree with that totally. In fact, I just was on the phone with a guy named Scott Barron, who runs schoolgrowth.com. 
And this is a really unique new service they're providing. They're basically providing a service where families can go in and create their own school growth plan for their kids, their own process to get them to what they want them to go through. And so they can customize the type of education they want and then put it together in a plan online and then sort of try and find the right school to fit that model. So it's schoolgrowth.com. It's really cool. I've checked it out and it's now live. There's a lot of that going on. So look, as we start to think about wrapping up here, I, I think, you know, we've had some really good movement this year, but obviously we don't know what the future holds. I think it's really important as we think about the states, and I'd be interested to hear your guys' thinking on this, is thinking about the messaging of the idea of school choice, and it really shouldn't be called school choice anymore, even though that's what we say. It really is about parental empowerment, or as our friends in, in Arizona say, empowered AF, right? And um, I think that's really important for our families to be empowered. And we should think about how do we message this and how do we get this message of, hey, I'm here to make sure all families get what's best for them. It doesn't matter where they go. And Milton Friedman said that all the time. It really didn't matter where they went so long as the dollars followed them. And this ultimately, this is a game about giving parents freedom and giving them money. What do you guys think about that? I think, Robert, you've hit the nail on the head. And it's the central message that I think we've been saying for at least the two years I've been with EdChoice and kind of came into the fold into this movement. It is time to put the kid back in, at the center. It is time to put the family back in power. It is time for those individuals to be able to say, this is what's in my best interest and this is what I value. And this is what I need to do for my family at this point in time. And I think that that is really what this whole movement's about. It's empowering families, it's empowering children, and it's recognizing that as a child enters school at kindergarten, their needs might change somewhere along the line between then and 12th grade, right? And it's being able to create a system that grows with that child, that enables that child, because at the end of the day, when we have the best educated children, when we empower children and families to reach their fullest potential, our community wins. Man, I couldn't say it any better than that. And, you know, one of the good things about COVID is that you get to work from different places. And as I'm sitting here listening to you make that great comment, and as we're wrapping up, I'm hearing Journey in the background saying, don't stop believing. And that's exactly what we've been like at EdChoice and what we are as a team. And I want to say thank you all for joining us on a, another EdChoice podcast. We will do monthly debrief for the states. You can always download us on all the usual platforms. Look at us at our EdChoice Twitter account or at EdChoice Facebook account or our Medium account. We are on every platform. And so thanks again for joining us on EdChoice monthly debrief podcast for what's happening in the states. And we'll see you next month. Thank <laughs> you.